Thank you, Gypsy. We, uh, we love it when Gypsy reads scripture. I think we've asked her too much recently. But I, uh, I, if you could be on my Bible app, um, it's way better than, than the guy that does it. I appreciate it. <clears throat> well, as a, uh, as a parent, you want certain things for your kids. You hope certain things. Um, obviously, as a, as a Christian parent, there's a whole list of, uh, of hopes and dreams that you have for your kids. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set those aside for a moment, though. There, um, there are things you want for your kids, like you want them to be successful in, in what they do. Uh, you want uh, you want little things for your kids, like you, you want your kids to know how to shake a hand right, right? Not not this little wimpy shake, but but shake a hand, look them in the eye, greet them. You, you want you want happiness for your kids. You want your kids to, uh, if they're going to get married, to have a spouse that will love them. Uh, you want them to have friends. You want them to be to be kind, to be generous, to be thoughtful. Um, you don't even have to think about these things as a parent. It's just you just have these hopes and and these dreams and these goals for them. Uh, I want my kids to be able to to know how to work hard and, and to um, to contribute uh, to whatever they're a part of. Um, the kingdom of of God is uh, sometimes described as an upside down kingdom, meaning that what we think matters we come to realize it doesn't matter nearly as much as we think it should. So, uh, so your kid, that kid that we're just dreaming of, thinking of, they could grow up and be the best. I mean, the, the top in their whole industry, right? They could, um, they could be recognized I mean, globally for their accomplishments. They could accumulate uh, so much wealth that, that it would impact generations down the line. Uh, they, could be, uh, they could be the best friend ever. They could be known for having the, the best integrity. They could, they could be a great parent. They, they, could, they could become world's best boss. Um, they could be really tough mentally. But at the end of their life, with all those earthly accomplishments, they don't necessarily mean anything. And it's not that what we do in life is unimportant, but the Bible tells us that, that what is of ultimate importance is what Christ has done. So uh, we see this, the gospel is upside down when we realize that, that someone could make it through life, they could end, they could be totally broke, right? They, they could be uh, they could be despised by, by their neighbors, by their peers. They could be rejected by their family. They could be someone that was known as being stingy, right? They, maybe they, they, they could be uneducated. They, they could have never gone anywhere in this world, never done anything great. And yet, if they trust in Jesus as their king, that changes everything. So today our title is, Who is Your King? And obviously my hope is that Jesus truly is our king. But is it Jesus or is it someone else or something else? Our truth statement is put your trust in the king God has chosen who does what is just and blameless. Later in, in our passage today, I believe in chapter 3, we're going to hear that Israel was pleased with King David. I wonder, are we pleased with Jesus, the king, do we delight in him? Do we treasure Christ? 
we come to 2 Samuel, King Saul is dead. And early in chapter 2, as you heard, uh, David will be anointed king over Judah, the, the southern part of Israel. But someone in the north is going to establish uh, Ishbosheth as king. And the question for Israel is the same for us, is who is your king? Will they trust in the king of God's choosing or another king? So let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And right away, this, this man who will be the king is marked by obedience to God. His ascension to the throne comes by seeking and listening to God and his word. He says, should I go up to the cities? Yes. Which city should I go to? Go to Hebron. And Hebron might uh, ring a bell uh, in your memory. You might remember that this is connected to Abraham. This is where Abraham settled. This is where he built an altar. Maybe you remember this, this is where the three visitors came and promised Abraham and Sarah a son though Sarah had been barren. Sarah died and was buried there in a cave near Hebron. Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, they were all buried there. Hebron was the only portion of the promised land to become the possession of Abraham. So it was the first part of the promised land given to God's people. So now here's David going to Hebron, and it connects David with the promises of Abraham. Hebron reminds us that David and the people of Israel are a part of what God had promised his people so long ago. Matthew 1.1, the opening of the New Testament, says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God is using David to connect those promises to Abraham, to the fulfillment in Jesus. So verse 2 says that David went up. He obeyed God. Verse 4, the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah, right? David is from the tribe of Judah. These are his people. So they, they anoint him as the king. They're the first to respond to David as king. Then it says, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. And you might remember this, or, or maybe not, that Saul... He was killed in that battle with the Philistines. They stripped him to humiliate him. They hung him up on a wall for all the Philistines to see and celebrate that they had defeated Israel. They defeated Israel's great king. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead were really, really loyal to David. And they, they did not like, the, the, or sorry, to Saul. They did not like that their king had been stripped and hung up as a spectacle for the Philistines to celebrate. So in the night, they decide that they're going to send a group of men at their own risk. They went through enemy lines and they retrieved Saul's body so that Saul's body and, and Saul's sons could be buried back home. And this is what David says in verse five. It says, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, 
For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over him. Right, David, David asked the Lord to bless the men who retrieved the body, who showed Saul honor. Right? Saul, the man who wanted David to be dead, he, he says, God bless them. And then he says, I will do good to you. In other words, God bless them. And, and David saying, I will be the conduit of God's blessing to you. He says, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And these are words that we hear a lot in scripture and oftentimes describing our God, right? That, that our God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is uh, it's extreme mercy, and kindness and, and faithfulness uh, means truth. It means uh, trustworthiness. It's it's certain, right? So it's 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 knowing God's faithfulness that, that we can trust in His steadfast love. That He does have this extreme mercy and kindness that He shows to even His enemies. David's words here remind us of Jesus. That is our King, who is the conduit of God's blessing to us. It's through Christ that we receive grace and mercy when we believe in him as Lord. It is in him that we're forgiven, that we're justified. We receive his righteousness. We're made God's own children because of Christ. And we've seen uh, this character that God has produced in David right, over and over again. He is a man thus far of integrity, and, and he is just. And, and I know he will fail, and, and he said failure is a long way, but we've seen this incredible work that God has done in this man. And, and we're probably not surprised when he treats the men of Jabesh Gilead this way, but we should be, because we wouldn't have been surprised if, if David just would have called them enemies and even cursed them for honoring Saul this way. But once again, we see that David is blameless, that he is just. Well, Abner, um, as we heard, uh, Abner uh, wants there to be another king. David's been king about five years at this point. And, and Abner, who was the cousin of Saul, he was basically the general of Saul's army. Um, he, he, he's the one that Saul asked, who's that guy that just killed Goliath? Go get him for me. He goes and retrieves David. And, and David and Abner, they knew each other. Um, they'd sat at the king's table together eating meals. You might remember that when uh, uh, David and Abishai uh, came upon the camp uh, of Saul and his men, when they were coming to kill David, uh, they were all asleep. And David and Abishai went down. And they, they stole the spear that was by Saul's head and the water jug and they took it and then they got a safe distance away and David calls out and the first thing he does is mocks Abner. He says, you're supposed to keep the king safe. How is it that two of us snuck in and got his spear and his water jug? Well, Abner, he decides that he's going to set up another king. He sets up Ishbosheth, a really strange name. Um, and, and what it means is even worse. His name means man of shame. Why your parents named you that, I don't know. But we have King David on the one hand who is, who is just, he's full of integrity, he's, he's blameless. And then in contrast, we have this man of shame. And when we put it that way, it doesn't seem like much of a choice. And yet, the larger part of Israel has chosen for, for Isbasheth to be their king instead of David. So as you heard uh, in the reading of chapter 2, uh, Abner, general of Ishbosheth's army, and Joab, the general of David's army, they, they gather together. 
at the, uh, the pool of Gibeon. Um, but, but it wasn't a friendly gathering. The scene is really, really tense. Um, and, and we remember that these aren't foreign enemies. These are brothers, right? This is, this is their own people that they're lining up against. The lines are, are drawn. There's David's side and there's Ispasheth's side. And they knew which king was their own and which king they would fight for. My guess is in this room, almost all of us, maybe all of us, would claim Jesus as our king. But we also know that there are other kings that rival Jesus for the throne in our hearts, in our lives. What, what kings rival Jesus in your heart? What has your attention? What do you run after? What do you find yourself longing for besides Christ? And I was thinking about what, what rivals Jesus in my heart. The most obvious one and the hardest one for me as a parent is my own kids. And as a husband, my wife. Like it's so easy for me to place uh, them really above everything else to make them um, into an idol rather than than pouring my affection towards Jesus. But my five-year-old, she's, uh, she's really good at helping me. God uses her often to convict me. She, uh, I'll tell Maddie, I'll say, I love you, Maddie. And she'll say to me something like this, probably about once a day, I love you too, Daddy, but not as much as I love God. <laughs> and man, I'm not kidding you. It's this regular reminder, oh, my five-year-old on some level gets what I'm supposed to get, and yet what I struggle with all the time. Another rival for me, if I'm being honest, is sometimes I get overly concerned with money in the future. Like I go through these seasons of, of being really, I don't know, nervous, but, but focused on, man, are we saving enough? Are we investing enough? And, and my justification is that I'm just trying to be responsible with what God has given me. And sometimes that's probably true. Um, but a lot of times that's me trying to spiritualize me wanting to hoard stuff for myself. Uh, another, another rival for me is, is what people think about me. I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't care way too much about people liking me. Uh, I want people to think highly of me. I want to be respected. I want to matter. Uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate that John the Baptist said these words about Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease, because that cuts me like a knife. I need to know that it's Jesus who matters most, right? That, that, that I don't matter. I, I matter to him and in in that he loves me, but I, I don't matter what people think of me shouldn't matter. So I ask you who or what rivals Jesus as your king. Maybe it's stuff, maybe... Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's some relationship that you're longing for. I don't know. But, but these rivals pop up in our lives and challenge the throne of Jesus. Well, back to our story. Abner proposes that men from each side compete. Um, and, and this sounds uh, good. Uh, it, it turns really quickly, but it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal. And I don't think Abner meant uh, for it to turn into what it did. But they choose 12 men each side, and the, the men rise up, and, and, and they start to compete. And before you know it, they've all stabbed each other. All 24 of them are dead. In an instant, in, a, in just a moment, 
This competition turns into bloody violence, and it, it goes on. It, the, the battle rages on. It reminds us that there is a battle between kingdoms. The, the battlefield is all around us, but unlike the battle that day at the pool of Gibeon, the battle isn't with swords. It is against flesh and blood. The battle is spiritual. The battle is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And it's really easy for me to forget that this spiritual battle is going on all the time. But then there will be this glimpse, this reminder that, yeah, there, there is a battle. There's a battle for souls. There's a battle for who, who will reign as king in our lives. And I'm sure that... Um, Joab and Abner that day, when they chose their 12 on each side, they chose some of their best, right? They chose men that were strong. They chose men that were battle-tested, right? These men had, they'd practiced fighting before. I'm sure they'd sparred. They'd, they'd been trained in how to use a sword and a shield, right? They knew what to do when, when their enemy attacked, how to defend, and then how to counterattack. These men were ready for battle that day. Are you ready for battle? Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand firm. Now we're, uh, the elder team right now, we're, we're reading a book together. And uh, the particular section we're in right now is actually talking about America's obsession with physical fitness right? We are, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us are obsessed with being fit. There are gyms and ways to work out that are popping up all the time, right? You can be, you can, you can be so fit that you could take, you know, multiple hit classes every day, or you could lift weights for hours on end, you can ride a bike up every hill in Camas, or maybe you've done a marathon or even an Ironman, but are you prepared to stand firm in Christ? Are you ready to stand against the schemes of the devil? In the Ephesians passage, if you read the whole thing, you notice how critical the truth is, how important it is that we're armed with God's word. I wonder how, how acquainted are you with God's word? When Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, uh, he, he fights the temptation every time with God's word. And even one time, uh, the devil tries to, tries to twist God's word, tries to use God's word to, um, to tempt Jesus. And, and even in the garden, we saw the devil do this, right? He twists God's word to trip up Eve. Do we know God's word? Right? Do we meditate on it? Just like you'll go to the gym and, and do reps or swim laps or, or whatever it is you do, do we do the same thing with God's word? Are we taking reps in the word that he's given to prepare you for this battle that is raging all the time? Well, the battle that day at Gibeon raged on after the 24 men died. Abner uh, was being chased by one of Joab's brothers. And this brother was described as being uh, fast as a wild gazelle. He was fast and he was determined. And Abner, I'm assuming, was older, 
um, slower, but he was battle tested. So he looks back and sees Job's brother. He calls to him. He says, is that you? I know you. Go chase after someone else. Why, why should I have to hurt you? And he's not, he's not just talking trash to him here. I think he really doesn't want to kill him, but, but the brother won't stop. So Abner stops in his tracks and thrusts his spear back into Asael. And it was, it was his speed that was actually his detriment, and he died. And it sounds like everyone just stopped in their tracks, just shocked, knowing that, that Abner, the general, killed the brother of the other general. This certainly wouldn't be good. Well, Abner keeps going, and Joab and Abishai chase after him. They're, they're, going, to, um, they're going to get revenge on the one who murdered their brother. Well, Abner somehow talks them out of it eventually. He points out everyone that's died, like, when will this stop? And Joab calls off his troops, and then both armies march back home that night. Joab's army lost 20 men that day. Abner's army lost 360. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1, it says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So Saul's house is, is dying, and David's house is getting stronger and stronger. Now, while Ishbosheth was the king that Abner uh, selected, the, the king that Abner established, Abner wanted to control this king. He wanted a king that, that he could manipulate and get to do what he wanted. So Abner uh, makes this power play. And I won't get into the details, but he, he's shady. He, he ticks off Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth comes and confronts him, and Abner was having none of it. This man of shame who he set up was not about to call him out. So Abner leaves Ishbosheth and goes to David, verse 12. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring uh, over all Israel to you. Abner is a man of action. He firmly believes that he holds enough sway with the rest of Israel to bring them all to him. And he might be right. He, he, he isn't necessarily wrong in his assessment, but it makes me wonder, how often do we come to Jesus thinking that we're a real asset to him, right? That, that Jesus really needs us. What we bring to Jesus is what he's given us. He's gifted each believer in the body of Christ. There's no doubt about that. Scripture is clear that God in his goodness gifts each person in the body to contribute to the body, to edify the body. We're, we're, we're gifted um, by his design. And we are all replaceable, right? Because God has what, everything that he wants. I could drop dead tomorrow, and in a short time, you'd form a committee, and you'd, you'd find another pastor, and that pastor would do great. Obviously, you'd weep a long time first. You'd probably, like, name a hallway after me or something. But eventually, you'd pick up. Right? And you'd, you'd move on because God is going to do what God is going to do. He gifts his people. He's working. So while Abner has influence over Israel coming to David, it's because God gave it to him. Verse 17 says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, 
For some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all his enemies. And then Abner goes and he, he speaks to the men of Benjamin and eventually he goes to tell David. Abner knew the truth, right? I want you to know that. Abner knew the truth that, that David was the king that God had promised. David was, was going to be established by God and yet Abner was openly defiant towards David. He, he was a rebel against David and God. This is the kind of guy that Abner was. So how would David respond to, uh, to this man who established a rival to his throne? Verse 13, and he said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. Right? David keeps surprising us at every turn. David takes who was just an enemy, right? the general of the army that was going against his army, and he makes a covenant with him. He welcomes him into his kingdom. Right? You expect a king to kill a rebel, and yet that's not what David does. That's what the other nations would do, but not God's king. He takes him into his kingdom, and he makes a covenant with him, just like Christ has done with us. Right? Scripture tells us that we were enemies of God, but God welcomes anyone into his kingdom that recognizes, truly recognizes Christ as king, that by Jesus' blood, he transferred us from the domain of darkness like Kai read, where our allegiance was to any king but Jesus. And he makes us his own. He transfers us to his kingdom. And I don't know, I don't know everybody in the room, um, but numbers-wise, you assume that there's got to be at least a couple people in here that have not yet trusted in Jesus. And I wonder, maybe you've heard how good he is. Maybe you've heard that he forgives enemies that come to him. But the problem is you see how big of an enemy you've been. You see your sin and how wretched it is. And maybe it's hard for you to believe that Jesus would forgive you. Because you see yourself like Abner, not, not just a rebel against the king, but the general of the rebels against the king. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is unlike any king you've ever heard of. He loves you more than I can describe to you. Right? All I can say to you is that I was a rebel too. Right? And even now, as a Jesus follower, I still run to my sin and its nastiness. And yet Jesus died and made me his own. Man, trust in Jesus today. Well, Abner does talk the rest of Israel uh, into agreeing to make David uh, their king. And he comes and tells David, like I read a little bit earlier. And then he leaves, and just then, Joab shows up. And Joab hears what, what King David agreed to with, with King Abner, that, that he's welcomed him into his kingdom, and he's not happy. Verse 24, then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Right? Joab accuses Abner of deceiving the king. And, and, and Joab pretends like he's really concerned about the king's safety, but we know what he's concerned about is, is getting revenge for his brother's death. 
So he accuses Abner of deceiving the king, but the irony is that Joab is about to deceive King David. Joab was also a man of action, so he sets up this meeting with Abner and, and, and pretends like everything is okay. And then he kills Abner by striking him in the stomach, just like Abner did to his brother. Well, David didn't know any of this, and the word gets out to David. And, and, and David says, I'm guiltless. I had no idea this was going to happen. And he curses Joab and, and Abishai. Um, the, uh, apparently Abishai was there um, helping in the killing. And maybe you think, but wait a second. Abner killed his brother. Yes, he killed his brother who was trying to kill him, right? It was during a time of war. He tried to talk him out of killing. He said, turn to the left, turn to the right. Go, go attack someone else. Don't kill me. And then these men killed him in time of peace. Well, it's clear that Joab's ways were not the ways of King David. Verse 31, David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. So David, um, he forces Joab and his brother to mourn this death of Abner. He makes him put on sackcloth. This is a public humiliation of Joab. David was uh, requiring Joab through these actions to publicly admit that this act was not loyalty to the king. This is loyalty to his own agenda. So David leads the people in this lament over Abner, whom, whom he'd welcomed into the kingdom, the once enemy of David. And the people see David's lament, and they come to him, and, and they try to get him to eat that night. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to eat. There's no way. I'm lamenting Abner. In verse 36, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the kid did pleased all the people. And people knew that it was uh, that it wasn't David who had ordered this death. And then we come to chapter four, and Ishbosheth, the rival king, he's heard. He's heard that Abner is now dead, and he's terrified. He's dismayed. And to some degree, the, the kingdom has shifted, or it, it certainly is shifting to David. It'll become official in chapter five. But verse one tells us that it's not just Ishbosheth that's, that's dismayed, it's the people uh, of the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. And maybe they're afraid, realizing that they had aligned themselves with the wrong king. Or maybe they feared what King David would do to, this, do to them since they'd been loyal to another king. Well, Ishbosheth, one, one day he's taking a nap. And a couple, actually, of his relatives uh, come in. And they, they sneak into his room. And they murder him. And it's gruesome. They, they cut off his head. And they bring his head to King David in Hebron, thinking that, that this will get them some kind of reward in his kingdom. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says this, When one told me, this is David speaking, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, Shall I not now require blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Israel had been set on being like the other nations. That's why they wanted a king, and God gave them a king like the other nations, and Saul failed them. And Yahweh is installing his king, a king that at every turn isn't what you expect. 
And it seems that everything he does is counterintuitive. He welcomes his enemies. He, he loves his people and does what is good for them. He, he punishes those who take out the, his perceived enemies. And he grieves at the death of his enemies. It reminds me of Ezekiel's words in chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God's pleasure is in enemies turning to him. He welcomes any who will turn to Jesus as their king and trust in his death for them to atone for their sin. So why wouldn't you trust in Jesus as your king? Why do we fall for these rival kings that pop up? Why wouldn't we trust the king who is just, the king who is blameless, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the king who wants to give you eternal life? Be pleased with God's king, Jesus, and trust in him. Let me close with Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Jesus we confess that you are king. We proclaim that, that you are the king and that we struggle with trusting you as king. We so easily turn to other kings that get our attention. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can see, or we're beginning to see at least, that what you promised way back to Abraham you're bringing about through David pointing to Jesus who will ultimately, who did ultimately fulfill all of it and will bring, will bring all his people to him one day. God, we, we love you, Lord. We love that we can know you, that we can, we can be forgiven of our sin because of the death of Christ. God, would we walk in, in the reality that, that there is a battle going on, that, that, there's, that there are sides to choose, God, would we choose to follow you, Jesus, by your grace and mercy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.